Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist now employed as Associate Vice President with Campus Labs. And with me today is Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Hey, Will, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you doing? Well, it's it's a big day for me because it, it is the birthday, as, as we record this, of my all-time favorite president, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, born this day in 1858. I always celebrate it. That's awesome. It's, Teddy Roosevelt's just a, an amazing president. It's funny, Mike. I'm actually, I'm, I'm at Disney World this weekend, um, and we were at America's Adventure last night, and they have this great scene uh, with Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir talking about the importance of the national park system and um, just this very non-political approach to the discussion they're having. And it's obviously refreshing with what we have in Washington today. Oh, God, God, yeah. And, you know, and of course, TR's a, a Republican, but I really feel like in some ways he sort of embodies kind of the the, the bipartisan sort of spirit of, of what we try to do because, of course, he was a, a, a big uh, a trust buster type guy and he went away from party orthodoxy when he thought it was in the best interest of the public. And, and he's, I've just always been just such a huge, huge fan of his. Totally agree. And on the political side, and even on the personal side, I mean, it's funny with the stuff we're talking about this week, but you know, I would have loved to have seen Teddy's reaction to somebody sending him a mail bomb or <laughs> finding out that there's a group of people marching towards his borders. When I picture Teddy, you know, eating the mail bomb or something and standing at the border himself, it's just, you know, he has such a persona and such a a strength about his presidency. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the listeners, probably listeners don't know. I still think that one story where where he was uh, giving a speech at one point, and somebody actually somebody actually shot him, and he just kept on, and he finished actually giving his speech after having been shot. Which is, and if that isn't just sort of a quintessential TR, uh, I don't know what is. But anyway, happy birthday, Teddy, wherever you are. Um, before we get started, Will, there are a couple things I, I wanted to mention, if that's okay. Absolutely. So one thing is some people might be wondering, what's the deal with Jay? Where's Jay been lately? And, and one person wrote in a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, I I feel like you're trying to silence Jay. And let me tell you that that's totally not the, what we're trying to do at all. And uh, I, I didn't want to say this without asking Jay, but the reason why Jay hasn't been on a lot lately is because Jay is actually running for office. He's He's running for state representative in uh in ohio and so uh that we've been trying i've been trying to schedule things so that he has as much time as possible to do all the things that a candidate for office needs to do and so jay will be back in pretty much regular rotation after the election but that's what's going on with jay he's running for state representative so um one thing i did want to mention though is that jay will be taking some time out of campaigning to do a live podcast with me. Uh, this is uh, Thursday, November 1st at 8 p.m. as part of the first ever Cincinnati Podcast Festival. Um, we plan on posting that live broadcast as an episode. I'm thinking probably sometime in early November, and so we'll, we'll give you updates on that. But both Jay and I are, are, are looking forward to that. It'll be our first live show ever and in front of a real audience. So if you do have any questions for us, because it's going to be a listener mail type thing, let us know, just, you know, mail at politicsguys.com. We would love to include your question as part of our first ever uh, live show. Um, all right. Um, and, and one other thing, Will, you know, I, I, I guess we're going to start probably with the show about the, uh, or with the story about the, the bombing, right? 
yeah, I mean, again, I think it's our, our big news from the week for sure. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's interesting. I was talking or exchanging messages, I guess, with a, with a friend of mine on Facebook, someone who's just a salt-of-the-earth type of guy, super smart. I have a great deal of respect for him. He's very conservative, um, and he suggested that maybe this was a, a false flag operation, and for those who don't know, mean that means that uh, somebody on the other side or on the same side did it just to get folks worked up, basically. And when I asked him why he would think that, he said, well, it's because he didn't believe that conservatives really engaged in any sort of violent, even violent rhetoric, uh, not to mention outright violence. And I mean, wow, I was I was sort of stunned by that, you know, and it made me think about, you know, uh, th- this whole idea of filter bubbles. And you're familiar with filter bubbles, I'm sure, Will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I can tell you, it's not just this individual. I've I've heard that in numerous ways in the last few weeks, and not just with the bombing, but also with the caravan that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and you know, that to me, it really sort of disturbed me because it isn't about being a bad person. It isn't about being unintelligent. This sort of thing, it just really brought home to me how this affects even the best and brightest, you know, of us. And of course, that's the whole point of of our doing this show, you know, trying to find some sort of at least partial antidote to these ever tightening um, uh, filter bubbles, you know, and, and this just really made me kind of want to recommit myself to not just doing this, but to certain things that we're, we're hoping to do in the future of the show to expand on it. For instance, this is the first I'll ever say of this, but um, Jay and I actually plan on starting a series of shows that look at fundamental differences between liberals and conservatives on a bunch of issues and then turning that into a book, sort of a politics guys, the book. We've been talking to some publishers about this, and it seems like it's actually could be a viable idea, and we're both really excited about uh, about that. And I also have this idea for kind of a bipartisan news analysis site because it you know it occurred to me it would be so nice to be able to go into one place and see what the primary liberal and conservative voices are saying about an issue. So we get a sense of these separate worlds and it just doesn't surprise us as it, as you know, it so often, so often does. And I mean, I'm, you know, to a certain extent guilty of this too. I should be paying closer attention, for instance, to Sean Hannity, you know, and, and I don't, and I'm hoping to to rectify that sort of thing as painful as it might, might be at times for me to do. I think it's really important. So, and I mentioned this, you know, because it's it's super important, I think, to all of us. But we're hoping that, you know, if you have the ability, you can support us in this if you haven't already. You know, uh, it was a little over a year ago we made what was a really tough decision to stop running ads on the show. And, and that cost us literally thousands of dollars. But it seemed, and I think it still seems to us, to be the right approach. You told us that's what you wanted. But, of course, that makes your support more important than ever, not just for this, but for the things we hope to do in the future. And so if you're interested in supporting the show and you're able to, politicsguys.com slash support, we would really, really appreciate it. And if you can't be a financial supporter right now, even if you could share episodes on social media, subscribe and leave review on I, leave reviews on iTunes, that would really help us out. So thanks very much for that. So um, with that, Will, uh, if you want to uh, get us going on our first our first story today, I, I think I'm, I'm ready to jump right in. Awesome. Sounds good to me. 
Um, well, obviously, over the latter half of this week, we've heard and learned a lot about the actions of accused attempted bomber uh, Cesar Sayoc, who, as we've learned yesterday and a little bit this morning, was a very devout Trump supporter, um, an accused white supremacist. And we've seen devices sent to a number of different people in a number of different areas, uh, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, George Soros, Maxine Waters, John Brennan, James Clapper, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Eric Holder, Robert De Niro, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, and then even possibly uh, Kamala Harris and Tom Steyer have also been linked a little bit. Uh, and the one thing they all have in common is that they have been vocal critics um, of the current president, with some of these being sent to home addresses, some being sent to CNN, lots of them having Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, office address as a return address, um, and some being linked to the uh, other areas as well. And what we've learned about Sayoc, obviously, is that he has a criminal history. He's been a prolific supporter of Trump. Uh, he's been a very social media-based advocate uh, for the Trump presidency and message. Uh, after September 11th, he actually had a, a similar threat made uh, where he threatened to blow up Florida Power and Light in a scene that he described as being uh, potentially larger than September 11th. Uh, and obviously, yesterday, we found him basically living in a van covered in pro-Trump stickers and paraphernalia. And in response, we've seen President Trump send some some pretty mixed messages. Uh, obviously, yesterday at the, the White House, he stated that the terrorizing acts were despicable. They have no place in the country. They can't allow political violence to take root in America. But then at the same time, at a rally last night, he talked about the fact that the media has a major role to play in what's occurred and why it's occurred. Um, and obviously, with all of these things happening this week, we've seen political divisions and polarization prominently showing up in both the analyses and discussions we've seen. And we've also seen discussions about what potential impact it could have on the upcoming elections, which ties perfectly back into the, the point you raised right before we started this story. So, Mike, let's start with the big picture. What's your reaction to the events for the week? Well, I mean, obviously, it's just hugely uh, – it, it's it's a, it's an awful thing. I just I'm just thankful that none of these bombs actually went off and and no one was hurt certainly. But but to me it's just sort of symptomatic of what's happened in our in our political culture. This idea that that politics has become literally uh, in some instances a blood sport, you know, and and that there are people who have who who will go to these extremes and and, and I, I want to be careful. I don't want to. I think this sort of engaging in, in the blame game sort of thing. I mean, clearly this is a disturbed individual. I, I think that's, that's fair to say, but obviously people are triggered by certain things. And I certainly agree with President Trump and is saying that the media has, you know, a, a certain responsibility to bear. But I also find it deeply ironic that Donald Trump who is calling for more civility I, and, and Donald Trump blames everyone but himself. And, you know, but of course, to a certain extent, that's what all political figures do. But Donald Trump, maybe more than others, a man who has on occasion, you know, called the media the enemy of the people, who has, you know, uh, demonized various figures. And for him to say that we should stop treating our opponents as morally defective, I, I think, does he, does he listen to himself? And the answer I think to me is that, no, I don't think so. I don't think that he sees a disconnect here. I think that when he's in the moment, he believes the things that he is saying, which to me is maybe even more disturbing than if he's doing this from political calculation. But I, I think he's right. The media is part of the problem. Absolutely. But he needs to take some responsibility too, because he's part of the problem too. But then again, he's also symptomatic of a much greater sort of 
uh, coarsening and, and of our of our sort of political uh, political debate, I think, in this country. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to completely agree, first of all, with the fact that, you know, when we look at Sayoc here, we obviously have somebody who, you know, is is has problems in lots of different ways. Um, and again, I, you know, it's funny to me that, you know, we have him now. We found it off of a fingerprint and DNA left on two advices. The FBI uh, obviously did an amazing job tracking him down. The Secret Service um, and the U.S. Postal Service did a great job of figuring out what these packages were. Um, even at this point, if we don't know for sure, they even would have been successfully detonated at any point. Um, the the underlying message is there by the fact that Sayoc included pictures of these individuals with red X's over them in the actual pipe bomb packaging. Um, but to your point, I mean, what gets me is it definitely puts into focus you know, I think your use of the term of blood sport is perfect, Mike, because it definitely shows that we've hit a point where for some individuals, this is more than rhetoric. Um, and I think at the end of the day, one thing with President Trump, if you talk to him even about the things he tweets, I think even in his mind as he's tweeting it, he means what he says, but I think he still sees it as rhetoric. I don't think Donald Trump sees himself calling an army of pipe bombers to action um, in his defense to take out his his enemies. And I think what surprised me yesterday wasn't just the tone that Trump took in that release, but the speed and efficiency with which it came out, which means he didn't get caught up in the bureaucracy. He didn't get caught up in an inner fight about the wording of that message. Um, and he did want to have that put forward. Um, even when there have been other things where, you know, the outside world or Democrats or liberals may have expected that an immediate message would be forthcoming. He's put the brakes on. Yesterday, there were no brakes on that release. Um, now, granted, there was a tone change between going from we can't have this to it's the media's fault in front of his supporters. But there's a difference between it's the media's fault and I want you to send bombs to CNN. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But and, and you know, I think people, when this sort of thing happens, people want some sort of response and wonder, you know, if things can change, how things can change. And I think it's just, uh, it would be great if the tone would change and starting from the president on down. But I don't, I don't think that that's realistic for that to happen. I mean, uh, Donald Trump is who he is and the media is driven by the imperatives that they're driven by. And none of that's going to change. And this is to me, what's the most sort of the, the disturbing and depressing, disheartening thing about this whole thing is I don't see this getting any better. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and I think even in all honesty, as we think about, you know, the Trump approach to politics, the Trump approach to his presidency, I don't think he's going to stop laying blame on individuals or offices or groups that he thinks are to blame. I do think for the next few weeks, we might see Donald Trump not calling out people directly by name, just, um, kind of thinking about this, but I don't think that will last for long either. And in all honesty, it's one from, you know, Trump's angle where I'm going to assume that he doesn't feel a whole lot of responsibility for this because to your perfect point, I mean, he was elected as part of a, a split that already existed within this country. Um, it's not like Trump found himself here and now all of a sudden citizens have these attitudes that they, they didn't have previously. I think what we have instead is citizens feel comfortable saying some things and thinking some things that maybe they weren't sure was politically or socially appropriate previously. But I think what we have to figure out is how do we draw the line between it's okay for me to get on Twitter and say some of these things versus turning that into creating an IED, putting it in the mail with Debbie Wasserman Schultz as the return address, and then waiting to see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, and I would argue that just the nature of the way we communicate makes it so much easier to 
demonize and dehumanize people. And most of us, you know, while that while that certainly may anger us and, and affect us, most of us have whatever mental stability is in place to not step over that line. But there are a, a not insignificant number of people who, for various reasons, don't have that, and that does push them over over the line, like like this guy, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's what comes to the question is, you know, and I think we'll learn more about uh, about him as we obviously go through the legal process. But, you know, for me, there is the question right now of was it mental capacity um, or was this a guy just looking to get some attention for something he believes in? Uh, yeah. um, and I only say that because, again, with, you know, they're preliminary analyses at this point, but just looking at the packages, looking at, you know, Schultz's name being misspelled. I mean, it doesn't look like this guy was really trying to hide this very well. Um, and again, I think. Secret Service and I think U.S. Postal Service did a great job of detecting these. But looking at the packaging, it also doesn't look like they would have been the most difficult things to see that something was a little off. Um, so this wasn't a, you know, a, a highly skilled smart bomber, um, which I think for our, you know the country's sake right now we're very fortunate that that's the case. Um, because if this had been somebody who wanted to do damage, who knows what we'd be talking about today? So I guess. So I guess my question to Mike on this is, you know, what, how do you think this is going to impact things in the next two weeks? Um, you know, I hate taking a, a potentially life-threatening scenario for a lot of people and talking about the electoral consequences. But do you think this is going to spark anybody to think differently going into midterms to, you know, maybe even um, convince some folks to vote that weren't going to vote? Do you think there's going to be any impact there? You know, I'll give a great political scientist type uh, type answer, and I'll say it might matter at the margins. Um, that's sort of, uh, but uh, <laughs> but 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 yeah, you know, I think maybe on the left, we some of us look at this and say, you know, this is this is exactly the sort of right wing Trump uh, initiated violence. I don't I don't agree with this view, but I understand it. That that sort of we need to fight back against it. It might cause, you know, a few more people maybe to, to get out, be a little more active, encourage their friends and, and, and so forth to vote. But, but, but honestly, I, I don't really see this having much of an effect except at the margin, maybe if it came a few days before the election. But I mean, well, I don't have to tell you as, as a political scientist, you know how, how people react toward these things and the whole attention cycle of the public. And even though this is a big thing, certainly we still have a little while, not a lot, long time, but a little while to go before the election. And so I honestly just don't see this having that much of an impact. What do you think? Yeah, I'd agree. I don't think it's going to have a huge impact. Um, and I think that will continue. I think the only thing on my end that could really have a strong impact here, potentially, uh, or a stronger impact, would be if the media um, or some of the anti-Trump groups came out and really tried to center in on Trump being the cause and the problem. Because I think in that case, you could see some Trump supporters or some moderates who aren't thrilled with Trump but still find themselves being Republicans – um, kind of embracing him and sheltering him. And one way to do that right now, actionably, would be voting for Republicans. Um, so I think the media and I think liberals and Democrats would be very smart to not try to not focus all of the blame in on one person when we know that this is obviously a, a much larger issue in society. Yeah, most definitely. Um, let's move on to our, our second story, which is the, the Central American caravan. 
Um, and as we talk today, a, a huge procession of Central Americans is walking through Mexico, uh, defying President Trump, not really facing a whole lot of resistance from the Mexican authorities. Um, and while it's still more than a thousand miles away from U.S. territory, um, and there's still you know a lot of ground to cover, if they managed 15 miles per day, they'd be looking at possibly two months before they hit the United States. And typically what we're seeing here is a, a caravan composed of impoverished migrants uh, fleeing what they're, they're viewing as political repression, corruption, violence, poverty, unemployment. Um, and we know that Trump uh, obviously is, is not happy about these, these folks making their way towards the U.S. border. And there's even a plan under consideration at the White House today looking at using the president's executive powers to deny entry to Central Americans uh, and one step further, restrict or suspend the ability to seek asylum in general, um, which is probably going to look a whole lot like the travel ban in 2017. And Trump's obviously tied this back to national security issues. Um, and, and, you know, with the UN looking at this, they're saying there's more than 7,000 people that have joined uh, when it started with, you know, 160 people roughly in uh, Honduras. Uh, and it looks like the group size is, is fairly fluid. Um, but it's of interest, obviously, because this is going to become a, a talk of, talked about issue. Um, so, Mike, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the caravan and, and what they're doing and uh, their progression? Well, it seems to me that uh, you mentioned that the size kind of goes up and down. It seems like the, the latest numbers I've seen, it's actually gone down a little bit. And it's not that Mexico has done nothing, but it seems like they're not interested in any kind of armed conflict or anything like that. With, with these folks, especially, I think, with the new government that's going to be coming in in New Mexico that's far friendlier toward uh, immigrants than the, the, than the current government. But, you know, obviously I'm disturbed by the president's insinuation that the caravan is full of criminals and terrorists and he brings up Middle East terrorists. And sure, in any group that large, there are going to be some people that are not the best citizens in the world. But from everything we know about this, the reason why these people are joining this caravan is essentially security in numbers. That If you do this on your own, it's incredibly dangerous. It costs a lot of money and people hear about this thing, you know, and, and so they say, well, this is, this is our moment where we can come to, to the United States potentially for a better life, seek asylum from the, from the violence and, and awful conditions in our country. And, and, and I say, who can blame these people? And, and to me, the idea that we would just summarily turn away these people fleeing violence and oppression for a better life in the United States on what I feel are just essentially bogus national security grounds that I find, I find that reprehensible but entirely unsurprising given how Donald Trump feels about the immigration. And I'm going to start by agreeing with you on the fact that the characterization, you know, there's nobody, there are no Middle East terrorists sneaking through with this group of 7,000. Um, I think we've seen that hopefully debunked. Now, again, folks on the fringe are, might see that differently. My concern with it is, I mean, I sit here today and I see this as an, an organized invasion attempt. Um, and I say that because this is a group where I think it's been made clear if they go towards a central entryway and they are turned away, they're probably going to turn and try to get through by other means. And what concerns me the most, I understand the fears of violence, the fears of corruption, the fears of their governments. But my concern is, is it's not as if individuals from Honduras or Central America are being successful 
in their asylum cases. I mean, if we look at the most recent statistics over recent years, it's fewer than 10% that are being granted asylum by immigration judges. But the issue from my end is they're coming to the border. They're saying that they're seeking asylum. And at that point, they're applying for it. They're waiting for the legal process to play out, which takes you know quite a long time in the United States. And that's become an impoverished a, a very innovative way for some of these impoverished migrants from other countries to get to the United States, to live in the United States for a few years, even knowing that they're going to end up getting sent home. Um, and I think that's a policy problem we have today um, because you know I'm with you, Mike. I don't think Donald Trump saying the border is closed to Central America and we're not allowing asylum claims to be filed is the answer. But the idea that this could be a runaround way to get into the U.S. for five years while the legal process works, it doesn't just hurt the United States. It hurts the individuals that do have legitimate asylum claims either out of this group or more broadly from other parts of the the world um, that are trying to get here. If we make these blanket rash decisions focused on one very populated group that's uh, making a lot of noise today. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you that we have a policy problem. Uh, I, I'd also point out that the current attorney general has defined asylum, who and, and based on based on how immigration law works, the attorney general basically gets to make a lot of these calls. Uh, and Jeff Sessions has defined asylum in the narrowest sense possible, as opposed to in the Obama administration, asylum was defined more broadly. And I would argue that a broader definition of asylum actually is more appropriate and more in keeping with American ideals and what I see as the the, the best part of the American character. And to me, this sort of defining it in the narrowest possible way is, is uh, Maybe mean spirit is going too far, but gosh, it feels that way to me. Uh, sometimes we want to keep as many of these people out as we can, and then to me, that's just that. To me, is anti, uh, is un-American, uh, if you will. And but I do agree that really what we do need is is a policy solution. You know, the president has blamed the Democrats, of course, for not coming up with uh, immigration uh, reform. But of course, you know, it's the Republicans who have a majority in the, in the House and the Senate and have the presidency. But I would love to see a major immigration reform. I would love to see, for instance, the uh, the $20 billion plus that the president wants for a border wall. I'd love to see that invested in more immigration judges, more and better facilities at the border so we could quickly and humanely process these asylum claims. I think that would be a great use of our resources, a lot more than some some wall. And, and the fact that we, you know, the idea that we can't somehow, that it would be too expensive when we're giving, you know, $1.5 trillion tax cuts and increasing the defense budget by almost $20 billion. That to me seems completely just like a non-starter of an argument. We can totally do this. And I just want to see us have the political will to, to do this. I don't disagree with you at all about the funding side. I mean, I think if we could put more money into immigration judges who could make these types of decisions quickly, um, that would help immigration much more than a wall. I think the issue we're going to see in the coming weeks and months with the idea of a wall is what Donald Trump has told us is happening is now happening and being highlighted by the media. Um, For folks that support Trump and want to see this, they can now every day follow the progress of a group of, again, Immigrants who are basically saying that we are coming to the United States come hell or high water. Um, and again, it 
it can be presented as an invasion, and that, I think, helps flame Trump supporters, the really strong Trump supporters, into believing that we need walls to keep groups like this out. Even though, if we think about it, we had a similar group that was obviously smaller in size that, I mean, fizzled out very quickly um, a year ago um, with the same ideas and the same approach. So, I mean, I just... I'm all for allowing individuals in who are going to go through the legal process in the right way. And I agree with you completely, Mike, that if we're going to say they need to go through the legal process, there needs to be a fair legal process, a legitimate legal process. I mean, I'd also agree with you that, you know, Jeff Sessions' read of asylum is um, way too limited in scope compared to what the United States really should be believing or standing by. But again, it's the question of how do we get the the political side and the bureaucratic side here to align in a, in a country that is full of citizens that on immigration, you know, it's one of those hot button issues today where it's very rare that I find somebody who's like, eh, you know, I'm in the middle on immigration. People yeah. are either really strong on one end or the other. Well, and you know what, what a lot of, what a lot of my friends on the left point out, and I could, I can certainly see it is they're, they're concerned about what they feel are the racist overtones of this. Here are this big group of brown people who are not like us coming to this country. We want to keep them out and and you know I I understand that and that that disturbs me too and and I think certainly there is there there is a certain element that feels that way that say no real Americans or the people who belong in this country are white people who speak English and that's that and and I don't want to encourage that sort of viewpoint. I do agree with that and I do think that's you know from a. From an interest standpoint, I would be curious to know what the reaction in this country would be if we had, you know, 7,000 people from Calgary marching uh, south. Exactly. Um, or if we had 7,000 people from Norway that had been bussed over and were walking north, you know, do we have this same conversation or not? Um, and on the right, the area I always get caught up on with immigration, you know, to some degree is it's not like these 7,000 folks are coming over here and they're going to steal your middle class job typically. Um, they're going to come and fill jobs that we're having a difficult time filling. Uh, in America today. Um, and I think that's just something that we get lost on is, I mean, in terms of in the South, we've, we've seen impacts from some of Trump's immigration stances in terms of, you know, farm help capabilities and what we're seeing in seasonal workers. Um, so there is a bigger picture here as opposed to, you know, there are 7,000 thugs walking across a border who are here to destroy the United States of America from Texas moving north. Yeah, and then, then to, on that point, uh, there's also that kind of weird, I think it's sort of weird conspiracy theory on the right saying that this is, the whole thing is being run by some far left uh, ex-politician in Honduras who's trying to somehow destabilize the United States. And that's one of those things that there's no real backing for that. It seems pretty fringe as far as I'm concerned. But there are some people who, you know, are really trying to promulgate this, what I think is a sort of outlandish type of theory. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's that theory gets me. I mean, Honduras was successful at destroying U.S. soccer for a little bit, but I don't think they're <laughs> going to take down our government, too. No. Um, but I do think it'll be interesting. And it, it, the only thing that I think could go wrong there that would fume those theories even more would be obviously today this group's on foot and they're covering like 15 miles a day. If you know, And I know in the next few days they're coming up on a, a major train center. If they end up on rail or they end up in some type of motorized caravan, it's only going to make the questions more in terms of how are they affording this? Where is the support coming from? Um, and again, I do think this is an issue that could have um, some impact for some voters electorally. Um, now, again, I don't think this is going to take any 
anti-Trump person and make them Trump or any Trump person and make them anti-Trump necessarily. But this could be the difference between I want to see Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis win in Florida and turn it into I want to see them win and here's $500 to help. Um, because I just think it's, you know, for, for the Trump supporters, this is an actionable rallying cry. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, you know, use that phrase at the margins. I think this absolutely could matter to some, to some potential Trump supporters, or at least some, I guess some potential, uh, we call them uh, Republicans who maybe were wavering on who, you know, on whether they would, they would vote. This might get a few more out in some of those closely contested uh, uh, seats, especially in the uh, in in the south border areas. Well, let's uh, switch gears here a little bit um, and talk about uh, some international affairs news um, between the U.S. and some other countries. Uh, a week ago, last Saturday, President Trump announced that the United States would be pulling out of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, also known as the INF Treaty, which was a 1987 bilateral agreement that kept the United States and Russia from possessing, producing, um, or testing ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles that were between the 500 and 5,000 kilometer range um, in their launchers. Uh, and Trump cited pretty clearly Russian violations as the chief reason the U.S. was going to withdraw and said the United States would start to develop these until Russia and China, who wasn't even a part of the INF Treaty, agreed to stop developing their own. Um, ironically here, maybe it's not ironic anymore, prior to Trump's announcement, White House officials had said no decision had been made whatsoever. Uh, and immediately after, John Bolton has to go to Russia to start kind of walking through why we did this and what they'd done. Uh, and as we'd expect, Russia and China are not happy about this. They've reacted quite negatively. Uh, the Chinese foreign ministry came out and more or less said that unilateral withdrawal would have a multitude of negative effects, negative effects which obviously, again, kind of ironic seeing that they weren't a member of the treaty anyways. And Russia has criticized the decision, um, ultimately saying that what Trump is doing is political blackmail. Um, so, again, this was kind of a Cold War area, U.S.-Soviet Union um, uh, attempt. But what do you think about the decision to withdraw, Mike? Why do you think Trump's doing this? Well, this is uh, every once in a while I find myself uh, in the weird position of sort of thinking that the Trump decision was the right decision. Um, and in this case, I think that on balance – the argument for withdrawing might actually be a little bit stronger. And, and here's my reasoning. It seems to me, based on the evidence we have, to be fairly clear that Russia is, in fact, in violation. Both the U.S. and NATO have concluded this, and Russia has basically offered up no evidence to sort of to push back against this. It seems like they have this this uh, missile system, uh, SSC-X8, I think NATO calls it, and it is – in violation of it. Um, and so, you know, we got to ask, well, what, what are the costs of withdrawing? Well, I think the big cost has nothing to do with Russia, but has to do with China, because this treaty applies not just to nuclear weapons, but to any, any missiles, whether they're nuclear or conventional. And it turns out that China has gone big into these kind of medium range conventional missiles as part of their defense strategy in, you know, in their area of the world. And we're kind of stymied in being able to counter that. Now we can with, with sea launched and other things, but they're a lot more expensive. And so, and, and so essentially we're, we're stuck because this treaty only stops us from developing these things. China certainly can, and Russia seems to be perfectly fine with uh, just flaunting the treaty. And so this is a case where I think, well, yeah, 
if it means that we're having a harder time countering a potential Chinese threat, and I think in the long term that's the bigger threat, and if Russia isn't abiding by the treaty anyway, well, I think you can make a pretty good case, actually. Um, my only real concern is, or my, my main concern is the uh, spillover to the New START Treaty, and the New START Treaty is on longer-range strategic nuclear weapons. That was signed back in 2010. It has an expiration date, I believe, of 2021, and there have been talks to extend that. That might actually that might actually have caused some problems for that. But all in all, I think the logic of withdrawing from this and saying that we're not just going to sit around and watch Russia flaunt these things, I, I think there's there's a certain sense to be made from that. And of course, if you're one of those people that's saying, well, Trump is in the back pocket of the Russians, this is sort of an argument that pushes against that sort of narrative. So that's kind of, I don't know, it might be an unexpected view for me, but that's sort of how I come down on this. Yeah. And that, it, you know, I, I don't think it's an unexpected view from my side. And the last point you made is one of the biggest for me, um, is that for folks that say Trump is Putin's puppet, this is clear evidence that that is not the case. Um, because this is definitely, I think this ties into Trump's statements this week about being a nationalist and looking out for U.S. interests. There's no part of being part of a treaty when the two countries that it most directly relates to, in this case for us, Russia and China, are not following at all. China was never a member, um, which you know, for me, again, is the, the weird part here that they keep coming up in the conversation um, nationally. But in reality, China could have done whatever they wanted from the start with this. They were never tied into it. And the Russians have not followed this forever. And for me, what this leads to is the bigger conversation about are we hitting a point in terms of international diplomacy? And I think this could have been true pre-Trump. I don't think this is a Trump-based change where treaties are nothing more than lip service, where we're signing these things, we're having proclamations, we're having big public displays of we're not going to do this, we're going to do this. But in reality, every single person signing it has their fingers crossed saying, yeah, we're really probably still going to do most of these things, but we're just going to do it more behind you know, the shadows of darkness instead of transparently out for the public to see. Because um, that's clearly what Russia has been doing. Well, yeah, and, you um, know, yeah. I really think that Russia more and more has become sort of a gangster type of state. You know, I and and the fact that they just seem to be willing to thumb their noses at more and more international norms. And you know, if we just sit around and let that happen, then I think we're actually doing more damage to the international order than if we just say, you know, pay lip service to these treaties ourselves and and get you know in Trump in Trumpian terms get played for suckers, basically. Yeah, and again, I think you're right on Russia. I mean, it, it goes even a step further for me with Russia being the gangsters in these situations because it's not even that they're signing things knowing that they're not going to follow them. They're bringing other groups together, forcing them to sign, knowing that when they sign, they're not actually going to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're bringing in smaller countries without the power and saying, you're going to give up these abilities and you're going to do it because we're going to do it too. Even those guys signing for other countries have to know the Russians are not going to stop this. Um, and from the U.S. angle, strategically, I mean, from a missile perspective, if we think about, you know, the, again, the China threat, um, we have enough allies throughout that region that this is the perfect range missile that we need to be thinking about. And now that we can do that without fearing being in violation of this treaty or the public being um, against us acting against a treaty that we've signed, because there's no doubt in my mind in 1987, this was important um, from you know a de-escalation standpoint. Yeah, but today – if we can't have those, you know, those truly intermediate range um, options uh, towards the South Pacific, we're going to struggle. Um, there's only so many other options. So this puts another 
um, another tool in the toolbox um, that gives us an opportunity to consider how we could defend ourselves against threats from countries like China um, or Russia moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Then our last story for today um, is going to talk about voter suppression um, and focusing on what's happening in the state of Georgia. So on Thursday this week, a federal district judge in Georgia uh, has formally blocked election officials from tossing out absentee ballots based on a voter's signature not exactly matching the signature that's on their voter registration card. Uh, And that final order was uh, put in place that basically says that um, every signature mismatch should be perceived as a provisional ballot um, for the time being. And this is all based off of a lawsuit by uh, the ACLU on behalf of the Georgia Muslim Voter Project, Um, ironically going against Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who's also running for governor and the county registrars. Uh, And their big pushes that obviously just off of the signature mismatch, we're looking at a very subjective way of determining whether somebody is who they said they are. Uh, And the judge said that the disputed ballot should be held separate and apart from the other absentee ballots. And basically that elections officials should send voters a pre-rejection notice and have them have an opportunity to, to come in and resolve that particular issue. Uh, and, you know, her exact words were the process should be done in good faith, is limited to confirming the identity of the absentee voter consistent with existing voter identification laws. But the concern they're having throughout the state is that with election ballots needing to be certified by November 12th and need, needing to be able to count these on November 6th, it's going to be tough to turn around time-wise, especially if the individuals that receive the, the pre-rejection notice are not quick and timely uh, in their response um, so, Mike, is this going to help with the voter suppression concerns? What do you think about the judge's decision? Well, to me, to me, it's a no-brainer. If, if as as many Republicans claim that their true concern is not with suppressing non-GOP votes, but actually with ensuring the integrity of the system and that every vote counts correctly, well, then of course you would just start by marking these ballots provisional as opposed to just tossing them. Out of hand. And to me, this kind of gets at, you know, the heart of what, unfortunately, some people on the right see as a viable strategy is let's try to make it harder for people who aren't inclined to vote for us to vote. And so uh, I, I, don't, I don't think this should even be an issue. I mean, I've long said that there it seems to be very clear to me that this whole idea of vote fraud, when you look at all of the all of the research, it's vanishingly small. And to me, it's pretty clearly an effort in voter suppression. And again, I feel it's fundamentally anti-democratic, anti-American. And I get why if you're a Republican in, in Gwinnett County, which in 2000 was 67% uh, white, and this year or last year was like 62% non-white, and you're, you're looking at those numbers and saying, gosh, there might be a big switch to the other party. And, and I don't say this because I think that Republicans are racist. I say it because they know how minorities tend to vote. So, you know, I just think this is a, a very sort of despicable action. And I'm, I think the judge made the right call on this. And again, I'm not going to, not going to disagree with you at all on this. I mean, the idea of casting them as provisional ballots is a perfectly legitimate way to handle this for me. I do think the interesting part is going to be what's the fault. Fo- follow up on the pre-rejection notices. Um, you know, these individuals are still going to have to come in. And I think right now, obviously, Georgia, this is a, you know, kind of a, a perfect storm of sorts 
um, where we do have an African-American against a Caucasian running for governor, uh, who just happens to be the secretary of state who's overseeing a lot of the, the rules that are being put into place here. And I also just don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, I mean, when you, you look at the, the stats from this week, at one point this week, there'd been more than 850,000 absentee ballots cast in the state of Georgia. And on the signature mismatch issue, 157 had been rejected. Um, so we're talking small numbers. Um, now, obviously, I mean, there's lots of time for that number to still grow. But for me, the biggest concern, and again, it does come back to the, the process, is using that signature match is the biggest problem in the world for me. Um, before I moved to Florida, I lived in Missouri, and I distinctly remember going to sign the voter book uh, and having a voter judge tell me that my signature didn't match. Um, and what was nice was she did it right there. So I literally just looked at my driver's license that had my signature on it and remembered how I signed that way, signed it. And she was like, okay, that's good. So, I mean, it was handled immediately, but it was a very, and again, in that case where I was, there was, there was no partisan debate. It was an 80% Republican County. Everybody knew the election results before they started. Um, so in this type of environment, like we're seeing in Georgia, I think it's an even bigger deal because you're right on the Republican side. I care about the process. Um, I don't personally have a problem, um, you know, purging voters from the, the voter rolls when we know they don't live at that address, when they're registered six or seven times. Those things don't concern me. But I think the key is the follow-up. If you're going to take somebody off the voter roll, send a notification to each of those addresses and let them know they've been removed for this reason. And here's what they need to do to get back on and make that easy. Um, because again, the idea of just flat out rejecting 157 absentee ballots and the person thinking they voted when in reality they haven't, that goes against everything um, from a democratic ideal perspective. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think what we should all be looking for is a system that is as secure and as easy as possible. And to me, the fundamental problem is that we don't spend nearly enough money or commit nearly enough resources to this. And from a public policy perspective, I get that. Elections happen every couple of years and people don't really think about them. There's not a lot of glory in improving the election system. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, the plumbing of the system, essentially, you know, and no one really complains until the plumbing breaks, but it's not like improving your plumbing is going to get you, you know, anywhere, essentially, when there are so many other priorities. But I would love to see a lot more time and money go into making sure that everyone had easy access to good, clear, reliable voter identification. You know, someone on the Facebook group said, what about biometric stuff? Think, well, that would be, <laughs> that would be awesome as long as everyone was able to have equal access to it. That would, of course, be the tricky part of it. But I am, you know, I, I'm not, there are some people on the right who say, well, liberals just want all this illegal voting. I say, well, I, no, most of us don't really any more than most Republicans want, uh, you know, all want to try to keep people from voting. But there definitely are people who do want to either suppress the vote or have a bunch of people vote who might not be eligible simply for their partisan gains. And I just think that is just, just flat out wrong. And I think obviously you agree with me on that. Yeah, no, totally agree with you on that. The biometrics, I think it would be, I think it would be fun to watch that get introduced because I think the script would flip very quickly into a lot of conservatives saying, I don't want to give you my fingerprint uh, yeah, the privacy or, whatever, yeah. or the eye scan or whatever shows up. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of libertarian beliefs. I am not one who worries about identity stuff. I mean, ironically, if they could microchip me today and I didn't have to carry <laughs> a card or an ID or anything ever again, at this point, I feel like they know that anyways. So just give me the chip so I can get rid of my wallet. Um, 
But I mean, again, from I think from the voting process, it'd be kind of ironic because at that point, you're going to have a lot of true conservatives saying, I don't want that because that's big government who don't understand that for some poor individuals in this country today, getting a driver's license is that same barrier um, where they just can't do it or they, you know, they can't whatever it could be in some of these states. It's a problem. And again, I'm just a big fan of let everybody be on the voter rolls uh, and make that as easy as possible. Again, it doesn't have to be the the automated. You're automatically there unless you tell us to take it off. But when it comes to things like my signature, I mean, I know what my signature is like. My signature is awful. Um, you would think I'm a different type of doctor <laughs> with how I sign things. The idea of me being able to match twice um, yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can look at times where I'm like, wow, is that really what my signatures come to? And I would not want on an absentee ballot that to be what gets me disqualified. If they were going to do anything to do comparisons, they should be looking at the absentee request form versus the ballot they receive back. Um, because if there's huge differences there, that does raise questions. But hopefully within Georgia, what they're going to do, I mean, it's obviously going to be a lot of bureaucracy, though. Um, trying to get these folks in. And the other question I have is what are you going to do when, you know, so let's say that I get one of these pre-rejection letters and I show up at my local registrar and I say, okay, well, that was me and let me sign. And by the way, I'd like to change my vote on this race on that ballot uh, now that I'm here. Yeah. Because it opens that door to interacting with the ballot again, potentially. And what does that mean? And what does that open? Does that mean that I can now absentee vote, you know, five times it only counts on my most recent but i've now driven my local board of elections nuts um, in the process again that's not in the, the ruling but i mean i'm sure somebody's going to ask the question no and, and and it's not like that the board of elections is this super well-funded you know with great resources group anywhere really and so these little administrative hurdles when you multiply them that's really tough in a resource strapped uh, environment Absolutely. And especially, I mean, if you think about, and again, not even thinking about Gwinnett County, which, you know, I think is going to be more well-resourced than some, but if you go into some of the, the poorer areas or the more rural areas, I mean, these could be local volunteers, um, which again, introduces a whole different variable to this in terms of the voting side where, you know, it's funny that we worry about the signatures matching. I mean, the woman who rejected my signature knows who I am. I walked into the room and she knew who I was by name. She lived five doors down, but she still had to, as the bureaucrat in that situation, reject my signature and have me sign again until I got it right, um, which felt ridiculous. And again, I was literally sitting there. I was like, can I just scan my fingerprint and be done with this? Um, but big picture, I mean, it just opens a lot of doors. And Mike, I think you're exactly right. This just gets ignored because the elections happen, so we don't worry about it. And we spend more time thinking about the voting technology than what gets you to the ballot box. Um, you know, we love new technology there, but not necessarily on the registration side. Well, I think that just about does it for us today, doesn't it, Will? Yes, it does. Well, a um, fun week. Yeah, well, you know, but before we do go, I want to let everyone know that as soon as we're done recording this show, we're going to be doing our special supporters only exclusive uh, show. And uh, I think this week we're going to talk about what is it? Um, that that big legislative accomplishment on uh, on op opioids, a bipartisan thing that I don't think got nearly as much coverage as it should have. And Will, you wanted to talk about was it polling on the 2018 elections, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just yeah. talking about the. Uh some of my concerns with some of the clickbait headlines we've been seeing this week. Oh yeah, that should be that should be definitely really interesting. And if you're a supporter, you'll that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. If you're not yet a supporter, you know how to do it. Just go to politicsguys.com/support and get yourself set up. And that does it for 
this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We do hope you like what you heard and you can support the show. And if you got a question, comment, correction, or just, you know, some kind of random thought for us, hey, that's mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter. At Politics Guys. And I should mention, Will, it's nice to have you as part of the uh, official team now on social media as well. You've been engaging with, with folks, and that's been a lot of fun to see this week. Um, so I, and of course, the executive producer of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski and Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.